Thank you, Jesus, that you rode in to Jerusalem all those years ago, not on a Corvette, but in a colt, on a colt, on a lowly, untamed beast to show that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and there's no beast, no heart too wild. You can't tame it. And this, this episode reminds us that you can be passionate about Jesus but have it proven to be that your passion is but plastic because five days later they were crying, kill him. Lord, we want to be able to say Hosanna just as Arpith prayed in our prayer circle before the service. We want people to be able to say Hosanna in truth, understanding what it really means and why Jesus really you came because, Lord, we confess the good news of Jesus Christ is so easily hijacked from every perspective, from every direction. Lord, would you show it in our hearts where we have polluted the good news of Jesus Christ? For if we add to the grace of God, we nullify it, Paul says. So, Lord, I pray that we would see not only the historicity of this epic event, but what it means for us today. Open our eyes. In Jesus' name, through the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. So, as Pastor Charles read, we are going to be dealing with two primary texts today. Uh, but let me set up our look at these two texts with just a, a candid recollection of me of what Palm Sunday was like growing up. We were in and out of church. We would go for seasons somewhat faithfully and then not go. But my, when I look back at Palm Sunday growing up, I have to admit, I kind of have a warm, nebulous, spiritual vibe. I mean, the triumphant music I thought was pretty cool. Not a big organ guy, but those songs with an organ, that was pretty sweet. Brian, maybe we ought to get an organ here, right? And then the crosses, which sometimes made their way into paper airplanes, uh, those crosses woven together of dried strips of palm leaves, which they would hand out. Remember that? And then, of course, people crying out, Hosanna! Now, I had no idea what it meant. But I thought it must be something pretty good. Everybody's cheerful. They're wearing bright colors and all the rest. So I have a warm, fuzzy vibe of recollection when I think of Palm Sunday growing up. You see, I had not yet factored in this harsh reality that in a matter of days, about four days, a little bit over, 96 hours, 100 hours, they went from Hosanna to crucify him. You're like, well, what in the world is that all about? And it begs two questions. The first question, which is the first point of this message, is this. Why this sudden seismic change? Why this sudden tidal wave change of opinion about Jesus in a matter of days? Why? And then the second question, which is the second point of this message and the big idea, so... Why do you want Jesus? This 
epic story celebrating Palm Sunday confronts us with the question, so why do you want Jesus? So y'all with me? Number one question, why this tidal, tidal um, change of opinion, tidal wave of change, just almost, almost like that. This is happening during the Passover festival. And it very well may be that there were two parades going on at the same time, two parades, loosely speaking. Parade number one, according to some historians, every year during one of the first days of the Passover festival, the Roman military would do a show of force march into Jerusalem as that city of 40,000 occupants would swell upwards to 200 and 250,000 people in that city, Jewish pilgrims, to celebrate the festival. And they would come in and do that massive show of force as if to say, y'all Jewish people can do your little religious thing. We're all right with this. But things get out of hand, we're willing to wreck shop on this place. And, and, and one historian paints the picture like this. There would be, as I say, a massive display of Roman imperial, imperial military might where they would flex their great numbers of legionnaire troops as well as display their state-of-the-art technology of the day. Just kind of try and paint that picture in your eye and see how you would feel. You have the cadence of troops marching in, in, in unison. <laughs> then you can hear the, the, the clinking of all, the, all the, the gear and the bridle for the horses and the creaking of the leather and, and the pounding of the war drums and all the dust swirling about. First, there would be the cavalry soldiers with the horses all decked out in bright colors. Then you would see the legionnaires coming, each equipped with armor, leather, state-of-the-art of the day, forged metal helmets, all kinds of weapons, flying banners, holding up golden eagles on tall um, poles, and then the sun glinting down on it all, shining off the forged metal helmets, shining off their weapons, off those poles. It would have been an awesome and terrible display of military might. And as I just said, it would be communicating this. You guys can enjoy your re little religious thing, but you better stay in place or we will wreck shop in this place. Now, whether or not there was that kind of parade on that day, and there very well may have, one thing is for sure. The Jewish people of first century, really third to first century, third B.C. to first century A.D. Palestine were under horrific Roman oppression. We're talking mistreatment. We're talking deaths, murder for no reason. We're talking assaulting women, the soldiers. I mean, it was bad. If you ever saw the nativity, you got kind of a taste of that. That's what it was like. Matter of fact, it probably would have been like the ancient Israelites of old from the time of Pharaoh when they're under Egyptian bondage and those brutal Egyptian slave masters are treating them horrifically. Or maybe it would be like a black American in post-reconstruction deep south being in a sundown town. You better not be in that town after sundown or it won't go too well for you. 
Or maybe like the Jews on the eve of the Holocaust when they went through what's called Kristallnacht for glass, when they broke all the storefronts of Jewish businesses as if to say, you got worse coming your way. They were under Roman occupation. There was tyranny, there was oppression, mistreatment, high taxes, unfair taxes, and all the rest. That's what parade one signifies. Now, that brings us to parade two, as Pastor Charles read from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to walk that text verse by verse expositionally. I just want to set it up. As they're journeying towards Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples, they stop at a little village called Bethpage, or just outside Bethpage. And what they're doing is they're setting up their entrance into Jerusalem for the Palm Sunday triumphal entry. Jesus sends two disciples head head into Bethpage. And even in this little vignette, there's a few brushstrokes he paints of his divine attributes. Namely, his omniscience, he knows everything, and his sovereignty, he controls everything. Because he says, you go into that village and you're going to find a colt upon which no person has ever ridden. And you go get that colt, and if anybody says to you, well, what are you doing with that? You say, the Lord has need of it, and it'll be just fine. Well, sure enough, there is a colt, unbroken, tied up in Bethpage. Sure enough, they go take it, and people say, yo, what are you doing? The Lord has need of it. Oh, that's fine. Now, that's got to be some kind of a a sovereignty right there. If I'm in my home study and I look out to my left and I can see in my driveway one of my vehicles and somebody, you know, getting into it and I come out and say, what what in the world are you doing? And they say, the Lord has need of it. I say, okay, no problem, drive it off. And and by the way, here's some 20 bucks for gas. Like nobody does, like this is the, the Lord flexing his sovereignty, right? And another cool brushstroke is the prophetic truth of God's holy word, the scripture, which is the basis of our faith. Zechariah, I think it's 9-9, Matthew quotes it. When Jesus rides in on that colt, he is literally fulfilling a 500-year-old prophecy because the word of God is true. And, and another thing is he rides on an unbroken colt. Any of you guys ever been to one of those bars where they have that saddle and they, and they speed up and it kind of throws you off? Anybody ever done that? Yeah, I should have known Alex would be the guy, right? How long did you last? Did you make it eight seconds? Yeah. <laughs> you were brave enough to get on. You don't jump on a colt that's not been broken. Jesus does because he's king of kings and he's lord of lords and there's nothing too tame, too wild for him to tame. Now that's just a few brushstrokes right there on the way to setting the context. Verse 8 tells us that the people would throw cloaks on the pathway into Jerusalem from Bethpage as well as cut palm leaves. You say, what in the world is that all about? Well, it's quite simply this. That was an ancient custom in which they would pay homage or do reverence to a king coming into the city. It's how they recognized him with dignity. An ancient ticker tape parade of sorts, you might say. Then you get to verse 9, and we pick up in Mark 11, and they're chanting. Some were running before him. Verse 9, some followed after him, and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 
And some people uh, would say that they were, they were chanting those things um, in what's called antiphonal fashion. I had no idea until I read about it. It simply means back and forth. I hope this is not considered poor form, but the illustration that I thought of antiphonal singing was the old Miller Lite commercials, taste great, less filling, taste great, less filling. And it very well may be they were crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is a very celebratory crowd. Palm branches waving, cheering as the grand marshal of the parade rides in. Not on a Corvette as I prayed, but, but on a colt. No wonder I have, and maybe you too as well, had a warm spiritual vibe about this Palm Sunday Hosanna thing. Speaking of Hosanna, do you know what that means? Anybody know what Hosanna means? The name of a song. Yes, I know that, but that came way after. (laughs) It simply means save us. It means deliver us. And you're like, baby, they got it right. They know why Jesus is coming. They're praying, save us, deliver us. Man, what a Palm Sunday that must have been. But now what we're going to see, like that. I mean, just like that, in a mere hundred hours, four days, if you want to turn back to Matthew 27, the Jewish leaders trump up fake charges against Jesus Christ, which, those are the Jewish religious leaders, I should say, the Roman authorities somewhat bite on that. And what do they do as a result? They falsely arrest Jesus. That brings us to Matthew 27. Pilate now steps out on a massive stone porch the government headquarters for the Roman imperial army inside Jerusalem. In front of it was a large city square, which would be packed during the Passover festival. And what we see in this scene, second scene of Palm Sunday, or four days later, is this. That the masses of people, that is the ordinary, everyday, common Joe and Joanne, Join the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman authorities in, in the main, rejecting Jesus Christ. So there he is on that large porch in front of that town square. And either next to him between two soldiers or maybe down below on the pavement below is Jesus Christ. He's been beaten already. He's been blindfolded. He's been mocked, slapped. Prophesy, who struck you, king? And then slapped some more, beaten some more. Maybe he's got a goose egg coming out of his eye. Black and blue eyes, swollen, blood coming down him, his face. And he's not even been to the cat of nine tails yet. That's yet to come. And Pilate knows that he is innocent of the charges that the Jewish leaders trump up against him. In fact, his wife has a dream and says, don't touch him. This man's innocent, which is probably the ultimate example of the foolishness of a man not listening to his wife. 
But Pilate, Pilate fears man more than he loves truth. Ooh. What about you? Do you fear man more than you love truth? Because if you do, you won't really be able to love people. He fears man more than he loves truth. He does not exercise his authority where he could have just released um, Jesus out of hand, right? He, he was the big cheese in, in, in Jerusalem over even the Jewish religious leaders. Instead, trying to save face, isn't that what we do when we're fearing man? He appeals to a, a yearly custom. It was just a token expression of kindness. The, these guys were brutal oppressors. But yearly, in a token act of kindness and charity, he would release one Jewish prisoner back into the Jewish population. And he no doubt is thinking, when I say, who do you want me to release? Of course they're going to say Jesus. Surely they can't think that he's a king. And so he says those famous words, the Latin version, eka homo, which means behold the man, John 19, 15. Behold the man, as if to say, come on, y'all. You can't really possibly think he's the king. He's beaten up. He's bloody. He's chained up between two of my centurions. So no, he can't be a king. Now, here's the rub. The Jewish crowd actually agrees with Pilate on this count. You see, they had been looking for a king and a savior who would free them from Roman tyranny, who would free them from Roman oppression. And at first they thought, this is our guy, Jesus. We're all behind him. But when it became clear, no, Jesus ain't doing that, how quickly they changed their opinion about him. Now, let's be clear. Could Jesus have destroyed Roman oppression with a snap? Or not even just thinking it, you know, because he created all things by the word of his power. Could have he done that? Yes or no? Yes, he could have. Yes, he could have. He could have done the Red Sea crossing thing if he wanted to, right? Bam! Do you remember, as a matter of fact, speaking of Holy Week, when um, they, that, that, that squad of Jewish leaders and some other people, kind of militia kind of soldiers, they go up in the garden to arrest Jesus. Remember that? John tells us, because John always gives us these wonderful pictures into the deity of Christ. John tells us that he stands up, identifies himself as I am, and they all fall over. It's like he threw a strike their way, their bowling pins, and they fall over. Then later on, Matthew tells this. Peter's like, no, nah, this ain't happening. It ain't going down like this. We fighting back. And Peter is really has, has really good aim with his sword and meant to get his ear or really bad, and he was trying to decapitate him. Either way, he just got his ear. Remember how Jesus shows off his power? Bam! Heals it up. And then he says, Peter, 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 put that sword up away. Put it away. Why? Don't you know that I could summon 12 legions of angels and they could just wreck shop all this place? So let's be very clear. Jesus could have smashed like that the Roman oppression. 
But did he? He did not. And for that, they were out. That's why they cry, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Now, who was Barabbas? Barabbas was a zealot. He was a political activist. Perhaps you would call him. He, was, he had led an armed rebellion and insurrectionist. And no doubt the crowd thought, well, even though this guy failed, at least he tried. Jesus didn't even try that. And who knows, if he gets out, bam, maybe he'll lead a successful insurrection this time. Now look at verses 21 through 23, very, very sobering. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? Again, he knew he was innocent. But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And sometimes when people have their minds made up, there ain't no reasoning. That's what happened. R. Kent Hughes said this back in 1989. The people chose lawlessness instead of righteousness, violence instead of love, war instead of peace. The world is still the same. Marxism with its red flag seems so much more alive than the way of the cross. Revolution, not a king riding on a donkey. 96 hours from cheering him to deathly jeering. From Hosanna to crucify him, from praise him, to kill him. And this tidal wave of change crystallizes for us a very sobering, heart-checking reality. Namely, you can be quite passionate about Jesus, but not for the right reason, or at least the primary reason. Because as we saw at the beginning of Holy Week, they were all in for the king. But when it became clear, he was not going to do what they wanted him to do, which is free them immediately from Roman oppression. It turned out that all of their praise was nothing more than plastic. That they were, in fact, fake followers. So that's point number one. Which raises then the second point in the big idea. So, what were you looking for in Jesus? So, why do you want Jesus? Here are several Jesuses people want. I think there's elements of truth in, in maybe all of them, but alone they are skewered truth, which means lies. I'm going to tell you in terms of cards, banners, and posters. I think you'll get it as I go along. Some people want a scratch card Jesus. You know, a lottery card. Get Jesus? Get stuff? Well, I want Jesus then. It's the old health and wealth gospel. Plant your seed, reap your harvest. Now, again, there's balance. Jesus does bless people. Sometimes he opens up heaven, as it says, and he, and he pours out, right? 
But at the end of the day, even Jesus said, for the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man doesn't even where to lay his head. Not Luke 9, 58. So there is scratch card, Jesus. Then there's business card, Jesus. What's that? People want Jesus just out of cultural habit. They want Jesus out of respectability. I go to church. I dress up once a week to the nines. And, and, and you find this still in certain areas in our country. You find that a lot in the South when I was in the South in ministry and pre, before that in the Marine Corps and in certain parts of urban areas, there still is a very much a cultural Christianity. And people want Jesus for an air of respectability. But never mind, Paul said that sometimes Christians are called scum of the earth. So if you're looking for respectability, Jesus is not the direction you want to look. Then you have this, monopoly card Jesus. You know, the get out of jail card, get out of, get out of jail free card. So maybe you find yourself in some kind of fix. Lots of guys were in the foxhole. They want Jesus, right? Before that next mortar shell comes in. Lots of people were facing 15 to 25 in the crossbar hotel. They want Jesus. A lot of times people are in a pickle. They want Jesus, but they merely want Jesus to get them out of a, even 15 to 25 or being away for a year in, in a combat zone. That is temporary compared to the big picture, but that's what they want Jesus for. And then you have the medical marijuana card, Jesus. I hope I'm not being crass here. But some people want Jesus just to make them feel better. So it's therapeutic deism. Michael Horton writes about that. You should check that out. And then you have insurance card Jesus. You get insurance in case you get in a wreck with your car, boom, it's taken care of. And some people just want fire insurance. They just want Jesus so they don't go to hell, but they're going to live the life the way they want to. Can you guys identify with any of that? There's two other Jesuses that are very popular. There is the political banner Jesus. The political banner Jesus says this. Jesus cares about this particular issue. My political party cares about this particular issue. Therefore, Jesus is all for my political party. And I, both sides do that. The religious right does that. And the progressive Christianity of the left does that. Now, Jesus may certainly align. Jesus is not apolitical. Like, Jesus cares about all these issues. Jesus actually would have a stance probably on most issues. In fact, Jesus may align in different times and places and contexts with one particular party more than another. But anytime you would try and make Jesus the mascot of your political party, you've downsized him. You've tribalized him. Following Jesus is rooted in the Bible, not human documents or political platforms. And if I might amplify that, following Jesus is rooted in the revelation of God contained in sacred scripture. Not in the best of human writings, such as the Constitution, which is pretty good as far as human government, governmental documents may go, or, or, but it's not rooted in that. 
Following Jesus is not rooted in some political party's platform. And let me say this. Any alignment with a political party's platform or some governmental document must come from putting the Bible at the top of your lens. It must come. Sometimes people say, oh, that position is being political. No, this book, you look through this book at every issue, and then you let the chips fall where they may. Instead of trying to domesticate and tribalize Jesus into your little political party, he is way bigger than that. Closely related to that is protest sign Jesus. You can go to almost any kind of protest. I I see the pictures. You can go from an abortion rights protest to a pro-life protest to an anti, uh, to to, to Black Lives Matter, I'm guessing Blue Lives Matter, gender equality protest, PETA, not PETA bread, (laughs) environmental, uh, you know, health, sex trafficking, you know, just on and on and on, right? And inevitably, what do you find but somebody holding up sometimes a homemade poster quoting Jesus and why Jesus, therefore, is for that issue? And you can see it on the billboards as well, right? But, but we got to go back to like last week. We need to dive into Scripture to actually see which ones would be something Jesus would, would be concerned about. And he would be concerned about several of those. And then to make sure that the answer or antidote to that societal malady is ultimately rooted in the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, back to point one. I think we need to remember that Jesus could have overthrown Roman oppression, but did he? Answer, no. So even on a biblical justice issue that I find myself very concerned about, given the clarity of Scripture and the skyrocketing numbers by which this has been happening, I'm talking about abortion. Even that is not directly or immediately why Jesus came to earth. So as people pull out one of these five cards or fly this political banner, or hold up this protest sign, let me tell you that people can do any number of those things and and still not be a a Jesus follower. And I'm telling you that, family, because what happens is if you don't get your lens right, you get caught up in something that is actually asserting worldviews that undermine the very gospel you do hold precious. So what is... The primary reason Jesus came. Sometimes this is caricaturized as one leader did recently, but it's what the Bible teaches. Jesus' ultimate mission in his first coming, you could boil down to this Jesus came to save sinners. Not the only reason, not the exclusive reason. But the ultimate reason, and I want you to strap on your seatbelt because we are going Mach 4 for like five minutes. Now, first, I want to go back to the Marquee Old Testament passage that highlights this. Surely he has borne our sorrows and carried our griefs. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. He has borne our guilt, it goes on to say. Now, Mach 4, because I just heard my noon alarm. I'm going to show you, I want to hit every book of the Bible real quick, and if I quote them wrong, then just help me, okay? Matthew 121. The angel tells Joseph, you name the Christ child Jesus, Matthew 121, for he it is who will save his people from their sins. There you have it. Save sinners. Well, I want to hear from Jesus. Well, all the Bible is kind of Jesus' words, but I'll play that game for a second. Here's Jesus' words on earth. Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life a ransom for many, a paycheck, a rescuing work on the cross. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Y'all with me? John 3, 16, what's been called the Bible in miniature. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Peter, boom, Pentecost. After the spirit dropped on him, he went from a fraidy cat to a fearless cat. He preaches, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Christ, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And they were cut to the heart because he preached God saves sinners, which means you're a sinner and you need to be saved. And they said, well, what should we do? And he said, repent, every one of you. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. There you have it. You fast forward to Romans. Let me just quote all of Romans on this count. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God set him forth as a propitiation to be received by faith. Then it goes on to say in Romans 10.9, he says this to you today, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then later he says this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, I delivered unto you that which is, listen, I delivered unto you that which is first importance. That's significant, right? How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and then he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. What book am I? 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God saves sinners. Well, what's next? Galatians. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, for it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Or Ephesians. Again, I could just quote all of Ephesians, but in Ephesians 2 and verse 13, it says, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. What's next? Philippians. 
Paul says that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes through the law, which ain't no righteousness at all because it's filthy rags, but righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Colossians, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, he has reconciled by the blood of his son. Well, what's after that? First Thessalonians, is that right? Yeah. How you turn from idols, he says, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son Jesus from heaven whom he raised from the dead who rescues us from the wrath to come. Second Thessalonians, but we're bound always, brethren, to give thanks to God for you because he has from the beginning chosen you for salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. First Timothy, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners of whom I am chief and that I might be a pattern for all those after me who would believe. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul tells Timothy, and that from a young child you have known the scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In Philemon, Paul talks about this runaway slave who becomes a Christian now as his brother because he has met Jesus Christ. What's next? Hebrews, Hebrews, he, all of Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3, who after he made purifications for our sin, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, because he paid it all. What's after Hebrews? James. James 2.10, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, guilty of all. Baby, you need gospel. You need grace. God saves sinners, so you're, that's good. First Peter, blessed be our God and Father who caused us to be born again, verse 3, chapter 1, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First Peter 3.18, Christ died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Second Peter 3, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jude, I wrote to you to earnestly contend for salvation for the faith once delivered to the saints. Protect this message. And then you go to Revelation, that great doxology to him who loved us and washed us in, our, in his blood from our sins. And the final invitation of the Bible, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who is thirsty come. Let him who is hungry come, come. The message, and I, I think I probably, well, I missed the first John. First John, here it is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath of his sacrifice for our sins. Second John, he actually says, if anyone comes to you with another gospel, don't even let him into your house. Why? Because we need to protect this message that God saves sinners. And in third John, he says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. Oh. The primary reason Jesus came was to save sinners. This is the unequivocal, clear, non-stuttering voice of God from the Word of God.
So I would just want to ask you. I'm not asking if you ever sung a song, pulled out one of those cards, flown a banner, held up a protest sign. Have you ever seen yourself as a sinner who needs to be saved? Because if that's you, if you recognize that, your only qualification is your disqualification and understanding you need the grace of God freely available in Jesus Christ. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute, but I do want to say this. Does that mean we should not care about other issues? Yes or no? Of course not. Let's go to that great verse, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. What does the Lord require of us? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. It's not just the great commission. It's also the first and second great commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, Scripture makes it clear we were saved for good works. And I don't have time to walk through all these, but let me give you a few. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And not, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared for us beforehand in eternity past. I went to 2 Timothy 3, Paul's words to Timothy, that from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. Then these words, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, that the person of God, that the woman of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Titus 2, he says, he redeemed us from all lawlessness to be a people zealous for good works. And we are warned in the book of James, faith without works is dead. But 1 Peter says this, you are <clears throat> a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are a people. For once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And in fact, I would go on to say, through the ages, Christians have done amazing things from the, for the good of humanity. Let me just reel this off. Here's good things, good works Christians have done. From saving unwanted babies thrown into the trash dumps of ancient Rome, that happened, to caring for the sick during plagues, to the abolition of slavery in the West. We need to see that happen yet in the Middle East and in Africa where slavery still persists. Building schools and hospitals, fighting abortion, 
adopting orphans, hiring the formerly incarcerated. We have somebody in the church that does that. Rescuing people trapped in sex trafficking, building homes for financially challenged, literacy education, TFA, campus ministry, building wells, serving in the government, prison ministry, volunteering in all kinds of organizations, and I could go on and on and on and on and on. Tons of good works. Now, family, there is a narrative out there that says all Christians have done is oppress. Now, you can find some examples of people who've claimed the name of Christ who've done some pretty nasty and ugly things. The scripture itself gives us a few examples of that. But let's be clear the world is a far better place because of Christians, because of Christians' good works. And I'm always pumped when Christians here and in other places in small, under-the-radar ways and in massive organizational ways step out and step into the world and do works of justice and mercy for the good of people and the glory of God. Are we clear on that? But when it comes to the focus of the church, the focus of the church is edification, equipping, and evangelizing, building up, gearing people up, and sending them out. And as a related note, but I think a related note, a closely related note, as one who was part of a team that planted this church, part of a team that's helped plant two other churches, the one who serves as a church planting catalyst, I think a lot of planters and pastors burn out because they're told, you got to do this, and 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 you got to do this, all the things that I just listed. Taking on way beyond what their shoulders have capacity for, or more importantly, what God has called them to in Holy Scripture. And you just can't sustain that. And instead of people going to Scripture and say, okay, what is the church called to do? Equip, edify, evangelize. These pastors and these, and these planters can start to feel like, well, preaching isn't enough, and, and, and discipling people, that's not enough, and, and praying, that's, that's not enough, and walking on people and, and be there for that 2.17 in the morning phone call is not enough, and loving on them is not enough, and, and as a result, they, they try and do all these other things. And the result is unbearable pressure, failed expectations, because you can't meet those expectations, Burnout, shame, and leaving ministries. Now, I am so glad that so many great organizations are out there, Christian and non-Christian, by the way, served by so many great Christians even here, doing so many great things for the good of fellow humans and for the glory of God. And I want to encourage people to invade and serve in that kind of way. But I have to be clear, the mission of the church is crystallized in these verses, proclaiming the message that God saves sinners, and then discipling people up so that Christ might be formed in them so they can live a life of good works, connected to the local church, but also as the Spirit leads them in all those different ways. The time's coming when Jesus is going to fully reverse the curse. You know that? That's going to be pretty sweet. He is going to put his divine pedal to the metal. 
and there will be no more oppression of any kind. Let's be clear on that. Because he's not coming on a colt, he's coming on a war horse. And I love that little New City Catechism, one of a short one, question 26 after some long ones. What else will Christ redeem? Answer, Christ will redeem everything. <laughs> he's going to put all things under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But right now, the curse is most directly reversed in the hearts of fallen, rebellious sinners who recognize their need for Jesus Christ, and they turn to him, and they receive what's called a new birth, and they're placed into a whole new glorious humanity called the local church, where they are built up, geared up, and sent out to serve and to show an onlooking, sometimes hostile, frankly mostly hostile, but often also curious world, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I, I close full circle. This Palm Sunday, what are you looking for in Jesus? Honestly, what are you looking for? Jesus said in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. If anyone comes in, he will be saved. I came that you might have life and that you might have life more abundantly. This is the word of God. Father, thank you so much for the glorious truth that you save sinners. Thank you so much for that. And thank you, that is the power to change hearts. I pray that this message would be the front end of all that we do and try to do and dream about. I pray, Lord, that this faith that has been delivered once to the saints, as it says in Jude, would be something that we are so passionate about. I pray for anybody here or listening who has never, maybe they've offered praise, but they've never come to him to be forgiven and reconciled and restored, that today would be not just Palm Sunday, but Pentecost, where the Spirit is poured out on them and they confess of truth, Jesus is my Savior. And I ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.